Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Christian scriptures. And we are in the midst of an ongoing exposition through uh, the opening chapters of Genesis. And there's so much in here that is foundational uh, for uh, knowing ourselves and knowing God. And so uh, really without this knowledge, you really can't understand the New Testament. You can't understand the preaching of Christ. You can't understand the gospel. And so uh, this morning we want to continue by looking at Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to read from verses 8 through verse 15. Let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8, wherein uh, Moses uh, faithfully records. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. May God bless today again the the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we need the light of illumination. We need the Holy Spirit's help. Uh, to shine across the pages of the scriptures and to open our eyes and unstop our ears, loosen our minds and hearts. And so help us, O God, today to receive thy word and to understand it. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in the ninth grade, my family lived in a subdivision neighborhood, and I was invited to attend the birthday party of one of my classmates who lived just a few streets over. I asked my parents if I could go to the party. They granted me permission, telling me that I needed to be home by 10 p.m. So I went to the party. As I recall, I had a very good time. It was a wholesome environment. We spent most of the time playing ping pong and pool. I did not intend to violate my curfew, 
but I did. I simply lost track of the time, a fault that unfortunately sometimes has followed me into adulthood. (laughs) And when I checked my watch, it was nearly 11 o'clock. I quickly said my goodbyes, literally ran up the street through the neighborhood to my house. As I drew closer to my house, I noticed that aside from the side porch light, the house was completely dark. I gave a sigh of relief, thinking that everyone had probably gone to bed and that I would be able simply to slip inside the house, get in bed, and no one would be any the wiser. I quietly opened the side door, slipped off my shoes, did not turn on any lights, and in my sock feet, carefully walked and slowly, step by step, upstairs to the hallway where my room was on the left and my parents' room was further down the hall on the right. When I got to my bedroom door, I slightly opened it and I stretched my arm around the door frame to probe and try to find the light switch on the wall. And I pulled the door too so that when the light came on, as little as light of light as possible would escape into the hallway. I found the switch. I flipped on the light. I squeezed through the narrow opening into my room. Mission accomplished. But when I got into the room, I found to my horror and surprise that my dad was lying in my bed. (laughs) And when I had flipped on the light, the glare had awoken him. What I remember was that he was there in his underwear the way he normally slept. But... He was wearing his watch, and his watch was turned on his wrist like this. And he blinked his eyes, and he looked at his watch. He didn't scream. He didn't yell. He didn't raise his voice. He just asked two questions. What time were you supposed to come home? Ten o'clock, I said. And what time is it now? 11 o'clock, I said. With that, he got up, he left the room, went to his room. And I felt horrible. Because my sin had found me out, and I had disappointed my father. Well, today, we're going to be examining a much more serious and meaningful biblical account of God the Father finding out the sinful disobedience of the first man and the first woman, though they tried to hide their fault from him. In so doing, we will be continuing to look at the inspired account penned by Moses of the first man and the first woman's fall. That's the Christian term for this. Their fall into sinful disobedience. They fell from the state of innocence wherein they had been created and they fell into a state of sin and misery. 
The old authorized version translators put chapter 3 of Genesis verses 1 through 21 into one paragraph or one thought unit telling us that this is all to be read together, but we have determined in this preaching series that we're breaking up this passage a bit and looking more closely at several shorter segments within it. Last time we looked at the beginning of this inspired account of the fall. We looked at Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7, where the subtle serpent tempted uh, the first woman and the first man. And we pointed out that this is a place where uh, the, 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 the New Testament sheds light and informs our understanding of the Old Testament because in Revelation 12, 9, Satan is described as the great dragon and the old serpent. And so the serpent was tempting uh, the first man and first woman, but really behind it was Satan, that old serpent, that great dragon. And we meditated, did we not, last time about some of the tactics or the devices of Satan, which includes twisting God's word, lying, making false promises, and appealing to the pride of man. And we watched uh, with sadness as Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, ate of the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thus breaking the command that they had been given by God. Go back again and look at Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Generous provision was made for man. But one clear prohibition... But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, along with the somber warning in verse 17. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so they had broken the very clear command that God had given them. Rather than the enlightenment that Satan had promised them, if they would only eat of the fruit, They instead experienced shame as they tried to cover themselves. And so that's where we ended last time in verse 7. And the eyes of them both were open. It was an enlightenment, but not of the sort that Satan had promised. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They tried to cover their shame. Today, we will... Examine the inspired account of of God given to us through the scriptures of how that he found them out in their sin and confronted them in their disobedience as he sought them and asked them a series of questions, which begins with the first one posed in verse nine. Where art thou? Where art thou? Where are you? And we will proceed a bit further after this confrontation and examination to see the unfolding consequences for sin, including the curse that will be laid upon the serpent, which will also include in verse 15, the promise of one who would come from the seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. As one friend of mine likes to put it, uh, from the woman would come the skull-crushing seed. 
who would crush the head of the serpent. As we turn to our passage, we can divide our text into three parts. We'll start with verse 8. That's the first part. And this describes the Lord God seeking the man and the woman. The second part of our text is verses 9 through 13. And this describes the Lord God confronting and investigating the fallen man and the fallen woman through a series of questions. And then the third and final part of our text we'll look at today is verses 14 through 15. And this is the Lord God cursing the serpent and prophesying the serpent's destruction by the seed of the woman. And so let's walk through, if we can, together these three parts of our text. Let's begin with the first part, verse 8, as we meditate upon it, which I have given the heading, the Lord God seeking the man and the woman. And so we begin in verse 8, as Moses records, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so there are some things to unpack about this. The they here, of course, refers to the first man and the first woman. They heard the voice of, of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. Uh, that phrase there, at least in, in my uh, printing here of the authorized version, gives you an alternative uh, translation of, of wind. Behind it is the Hebrew word ruach. It's a term that refers to the wind, sometimes refers to the spirit of God. Here, though, it was an idiom referring to uh, the cool of the day, when there would be the cool breezes of the evening. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let me offer at least two further observations about this opening statement in verse 8. First of all, we should recognize that the, some of the language which is being used here has been given to accommodate its spiritual message to us. Interpreters of the Bible talk about places where there, there is accommodation, where the inspired author, driven along by the Holy Spirit, gives us terms that are accommodated to our ability to understand. In the same way that a, that a parent will sometime, sometimes lisp and, and, and babble and do baby talk with an infant child, uh, in order to communicate basic instructions to that precious child in ways that that child can understand. So sometimes in the scriptures, uh, there is a lisping to us, an accommodation to us, so that we can understand things despite our great limitations. And so this is an example of this. We can think especially about this description of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we must balance that against other places in Scripture. The Lord Jesus, for example, in John 4, when he met the Samaritan woman at the well, John 4, verse 24, he said to her that, that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. God the Father has no body, he has no legs, he does not walk. He is omnipresent. So he, there's, there's no way he can go from one place where he is to another place where he isn't because he's all places all the time. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. 
As the psalmist puts it in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I go to the highest place, if I go to the lowest place, God is there and he's everywhere in between. He's omnipresent. The psalmist continues, Psalm 139, verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. God's in the, at the very bottom of the ocean. He goes, go to the lowest point of the sea and God is there. He says in verse 10 of Psalm 139, Even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. The inspired penman, driven by the Holy Spirit, is thus, in this description in verse 8, using language that we simple men can understand in order to convey spiritual truths to us about God. Our, 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 our limited minds, we need, we need sometimes to be lisped uh, the truths so that we can understand them. The scholars will call this literary phenomenon an anthropomorphism. It comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means man. Anthropology is the study of man. Uh, An anthropomorphism is anthropos, man, and morphe, a form. So he's speaking to us in the form of, of man, describing God like a man. So... God is figuratively described doing something like walking in the garden, though he has no legs. The Bible will do this quite often. For example, the Bible tells us in Exodus 31, 18, that the Ten Commandments were written on a stone tablet with the finger of God. Or we will read in Psalm 13 and verse 1 about God hiding his face. How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Or we will read in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Or we will read in Job 9 and verse 8, that the Lord treadeth upon the waves of the sea. But God the Father does not have fingers. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have uh, uh, arms. He doesn't have ears. He doesn't have feet with which to tread or walk. All these descriptions are given to us as an accommodation to help us understand his essence and his actions. And so what's being conveyed to us here in, in Genesis 3.8, the opening of this, the point that's being made is when the first man and first woman fell into sin, then God, who knows all and who is everywhere, made himself manifest unto them. He came and walked in the garden. He came to meet them. He came to confront them. He came to spiritually investigate them. And so this is what is being conveyed to us. Second notice about this opening statement, especially the mention that they heard the voice of the Lord God. 
Remember that combination term is the one that's used throughout Genesis 2 and 3, Lord God. This is what God is called here in Genesis 2 and 3. And so they heard the voice of the Lord God. Let me read that again, Genesis 3 and verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so the term here that is used here, again, refers to the voice of the Lord as it's translated. This term could also simply mean sound. It could mean they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, another accommodation. Maybe you know the hymn, This Is My Father's World, where there's that line that always sticks in my ear, in the rustling grass I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Or... The term voice in Hebrew, kol, may be referring to uh, the voice of God calling out the names of the first man, especially Adam. It's interesting that this is the first time in Scripture that this, this term, the voice of the Lord God, appears in the Bible. Again, it's the Hebrew word kol. And if you read through the rest of the Bible you see that this, this, this term comes to have great significance. So that it refers uh, to the utterances and the revelations that come from this transcendent, invisible, eternal God, the communications that He makes to men. The whole of Psalm 29, for example, describes the voice of the Lord. And it makes reference again and again over and over to the voice of the Lord. In Psalm 29, verse 4, it says, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And so what can we gather now from from this, reflecting on it a bit more? What we're being told, the point is that in response to mankind's fall, in response to mankind's violation of God's command, God came and made Himself manifest and present and He spoke with His voice. He sought them. He called them. He revealed Himself to them. Well, what about Adam and his wife? By the way, she will not be given her name until Adam names her. Later in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, her name will be given as Eve because she was the mother of all living. Here she's just the wife of Adam. That's the reference for her. And we get to see their response now in the second half of verse 8. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God Amongst the trees of the garden. Here we learn that following up on verse 7, we were told that their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. Here we are told that when the Lord came, when he manifested himself, when he spoke through his voice, that Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, that they tried to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord among the very trees in the garden which the Lord God had provided for them. If you go back and look at Genesis 2 and verse 9. This description here reminds me of uh, 
of, of when, I, when my children were younger, playing hide and seek with them. Do you remember or have you ever played hide and seek with a very young child, like a preschooler? Uh, if you play hide and seek with them, they will often you know, hide behind, if you're in the yard, they'll hide behind a tree that's as thick as a broomstick, you know, and they'll stand there. Or if you play in the living room, they'll get right beside the couch, you know, out in the open where you can see them. Or maybe they'll throw a blanket over themselves or something. If they can't see you, you can't see them. And it, it reminds me of the scene that's being described here. Here is God. Here is the God who made the world in the space of six days and all very good. Here is the God who is omnipresent. Here is the God, it's another one of our theological terms, who is omniscient, omniscience, all-knowing. I love the description that's given in 2 Chronicles 16.9 where it says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Again, God doesn't have eyes, but what's the image? What's that accommodation saying? God's eyes are everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. And what is being conveyed to us here is that Adam and Eve are are attempting to hide from an all-knowing God, a God whose knowledge is inexhaustible. Imagine being so spiritually dull as to think that one can hide himself or he can hide anything from God. You know what the sad part is? Probably to a man, woman, and child in here, we've we've done the same thing or we're doing the same thing right now. We think we've hidden something. We think we've hidden something from God. Oh, really? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout throughout the whole earth. There's nothing that's hidden from him. Let's move on to the second part of our text, which is verses 9 through 13. And I've given this the the heading, the Lord God confronting and investigating the fallen man and the fallen woman. And so beginning in verse 9, we have the confrontation between a righteous God and sinful mankind. And so in the beginning of verse 9, we read, and the Lord God, there's the combination name again, prevalent in Genesis 2 and 3, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Notice first that it is the Lord God who initiates. It is the Lord God who seeks. And this is where my little opening illustration breaks down because when I disobeyed my human father, uh, he waited. It's pretty wise, wasn't he? He waited in the bed. But when Adam... And his wife fell into sin. The Lord God came seeking him and calling him. Next we read there in the second half of verse 9. The Lord God posed a question. Where art thou? You'll notice if you're using the authorized version. I'm guessing the New King James Version probably says where are you. And it probably has the R in italic. 
But you'll notice in the authorized version, where art thou, it has the word art uh, in italic. And whenever you have one of those italic words, it tells you that the translator is supplying a word to make it make sense uh, in idiomatic English. And so the, the Hebrew there, it literally says, where you? You ever got in, into a rush, maybe trying to find your child or something? Where are you? Where are you? This is God speaking, God seeking. Now, we also need to ask, did God pose this question because he didn't know where Adam and his wife were? Did he pose this question because he was ignorant of their whereabouts? Of course not. He asked this question for Adam's good. That throughout this spiritual investigation, he might work something good for him. God comes to us and he poses questions. He investigates to bring about some good for us. This is actually here in verse 9, the first of four spiritual questions which the Lord God will pose in this conversation, in this confrontation. Three of these questions will be posed to the man and one will be posed to the woman. And uh, we might, in looking at this, say that uh, this question is, again, the sort that God poses to sinful men and women every time uh, they fall and he goes out and seeks them and makes himself known to them once they have fallen into grave disobedience. In verse 10, we have Adam's response. Look at verse 10. And he said, I heard thy voice, again, the cool, the voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam knew that he was shamefully exposed because of his sin. And he was filled with fear. Perhaps he was recalling the somber warning that the Lord had given to Adam in Genesis 2.17. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And what he learned was that God keeps his word. Already with the fall, the sense of shame having come upon him and guilt, Adam had experienced immediately a kind of spiritual death and he intuitively knew that physical death was to come. We read it this morning, didn't we? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. He learned also in a mere moment that the old serpent had lied. Look back at Genesis 3.4. And you can see, or yeah, Genesis 3, 4, the serpent said to the woman, ye shall not surely die. See, that's one of his lies. There will be no consequences for sin. Nobody will get hurt. And so it had become clear to him that Satan had lied. And it's interesting because this is, this is probably the first time we have in the scriptures a record of the experience of a man, a sinful man, fearing God as he fears his own mortality. I know we have at least one person in our congregation who shared in his testimony that one of the means God used to bring him to the faith was his fear of death. He was afraid of what would happen to him when he died. 
And God used that as a means to draw him to himself. And so here, uh, Adam has this, this fear. The second of the four questions comes in at the start of verse 11. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Again, the, the, the awareness of nakedness is an indicator of the awareness of sin and guilt. There is something innate in mankind that associates nakedness with shame. John Calvin made an interesting point in his commentary here on Genesis 3. He he wrote this, he said, We cannot behold a naked man without a sense of shame. Yet at the sight of an ass, a dog, or an ox, no such feeling will be produced. If you, if you see a dog running down the road, he doesn't have clothes on, you'll say, oh my goodness, there's a naked dog. There's a naked cow and a naked horse. But let a naked man go running down the road and you, you know, something's wrong. It's shameful. It tells you something about the, the, the difference between the basic dignity of a man and a beast. But in his pre-fallen innocent state, man had not fallen to sin. He had no shame. Now, having fallen, he's ashamed. His nakedness has been exposed. His vulnerability has been exposed. The third question comes in quick succession in verse 11. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? These two questions are related. The question about who told you you were naked and did you eat of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And again, the Lord God does not ask these things because he is ignorant of the answers. He knows exactly what has happened. Rather, he asks these questions in the way a master teacher poses questions to his students to teach them and to do them good. God, not Socrates, invented the Socratic method, teaching by asking questions. He is giving Adam the opportunity to come clean. He is giving Adam the opportunity to confess his sin. When King David fell into sin, the Lord God sent the prophet Nathan to confront him. Not to crush him, even as he pointed to him and said, Thou art the man. But to bring him to confession and repentance, which David expressed in Psalm 51. When he said to God against you, you only have I sinned and done this wicked thing in thy sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. God was giving uh, to Adam that opportunity to come clean. As the Apostle John will put it in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But notice the man's response in verse 12. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. What is Adam doing? 
He's passing the buck. He's blame shifting. He's blame casting. He's caught in his own sin. And what does he do? It's not my fault. She made me do it. He blames his wife. And really, what is even worse, what is even more despicable, is he's really blaming God. As he says to the Lord, it's the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. It's all your fault, God. If you hadn't given me this woman, I wouldn't have ever eaten of the fruit, given how upright I am. And even that, it contrasts so much with, remember, remember what his initial reaction had been to the woman? If you look back at Genesis 2 and verse 23, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God had given woman as a special gift, a help meet for him. And now he's throwing her under the bus and blaming her for his own wicked actions. Now he's accusing God of having given him a partner who would only drag him down. The Lord next turns then to the woman in verse 13. The first three of the four questions are posed to the man. The fourth final question recorded here in our passage is going to now be posed to the woman. And so look at verse 13. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? What is this that thou hast done? She's given the same opportunity that Adam was given. The opportunity to come clean. The the opportunity to to confess uh, her sin and to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Does she confess her fault? Does she acknowledge her wrongdoing? Does she take responsibility for her own actions? Sadly, as we continue to read in verse 13, she does not. Instead, she engages in the first recorded incidents of the devil made me do it argument or the serpent made me do it defense. Look at the second half of verse 13. And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. By blaming the serpent, of course, she is also blaming God. As Adam did, for who created the serpent and placed him in this world but God himself. As one commentator has observed, sin has resulted in mankind's basic unwillingness to admit guilt, to accept responsibility for actions, and to abide by penalties for sin. Anybody in this meeting house can resonate with that aside from me? Ever done something you knew was wrong, but you weren't willing to admit your own guilt in it? You weren't willing to take your own responsibility for it? Instead, you blamed it on your wife, or you blamed it on the devil, or you blamed it on God? Well, with that, the confrontation and the spiritual investigation, the spiritual interrogation comes to an end. There has been at this point, seemingly not yet, any sincere repentance from and confession of sin. And so commences the curses, which the Lord God so justly dispenses. There will be a threefold curse that is presented here in Genesis 3. 
The first curse, it'll begin in verse 14, will be upon the serpent. And the Lord God said unto the serpent. The second of these will come in verse 16, will be to the woman, unto the woman, he said. And the third will be to the man, verse 17, and unto Adam, he said. God willing, next Lord's Day, we'll unpack the curse upon the woman and the curse upon the man. And we'll perhaps begin to meditate, think about why are there conflicts between men and women? Why are there conflicts in marriages? Why is there competition among men and women? We'll look at that, God willing, next week. For today, though, we're just going to look finally at these last two verses, which describe the curse upon the serpent. In verse 14, we have the, the, the pronunciation of this curse. Look at verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now, we've got the curse upon the serpent. Now, we noted before that the real agent behind the deception, given the light of Revelation 12 and verse 9, was Satan himself, that old serpent. But still, this most subtle, as he's described in Genesis 3.1, crafty or cunning of creatures, the serpent, somehow made himself available as a means to be used by Satan. And so he bears for all time his burden, even as all creation will be tarnished by the fall of mankind. And there is laid upon the serpent a curse above all other creatures in the created order. He is cursed as Moses reports it, above all cattle, we're increasing our Hebrew, the behemoth, above all the behemoths, and above every beast of the field. Three further and sometimes overlapping things are noticed. First, in verse 14, he will go upon his belly. And many interpreters, as they've read this, have, have speculated, thought that perhaps this implies that before the fall, in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, when the serpent is, is made, that he was able to, uh, to move upright. And as a result of the curse, instead, he, it, it, part of the curse is he must go upon his belly. Second, uh, part of this curse, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. The idea here is not that the snake, the serpent, literally eats dust, but that he will crawl through the dust. And then thirdly, and this, this begins to, be, to come out in verse 15, he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And this describes, with the word enmity, a dislike or a hatred between the serpent and the woman, and between her seed, the human beings that will come from her by ordinary generation, and the serpent's seed. The skeptics will tell us that, who, who doubt the historicity of Genesis, will tell us that this is simply uh, what they call an etiological explanation for what seems like a natural response of human beings to cringe and feel unsettled or threatened in the presence of a serpent. I know there are some people who like serpents, uh, but I think you've got to overcome some instinctual revulsion at them. 
And interestingly, in God's providence, just this week, I walked out into uh, my garage and there is a there's a snake crawling through my garage. And um, he's a dead snake now because I got him with my shovel. But uh, but there is this sort of natural revulsion in, in most people towards the serpent. And and God's word tells us that that's a that's an emanation of the curse. And so. Uh, This was caused by man's fall into sin, man's deception. Beyond the physical level of enmity, however, there is also being described here a spiritual enmity between those men who will be the seed of the woman by ordinary generation and those who will be the spiritual descendants of the old serpent, Satan. There will be a spiritual conflict between the elect seed of the woman and the reprobate seed of Satan. Christ will say to those who oppose him in John 8, verse 44, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. And so it it describes an enmity that goes on to this day between the elect of God and the worldling who hates God, the fool who says in his heart there is no God. There is, though, one very significant flicker of light in this passage, and it comes at the end of verse 15, where it says, of the seed of the woman, it, or could be translated as he, shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now he talks about one specific seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent while the serpent will in turn bruise his heel upon the serpent's head as he crushes him. And this one little flicker of light here has been called in Christian tradition the proto-evangelion or the first prophecy of the gospel, the first prophecy of the good news. It's interesting that this prophecy doesn't come through a prophet like Moses, although Moses record this, but it's a prophecy that comes from God. So that one commentator put it this way. He said, God is the first prophet. And the first prophecy that he makes is the seed of the woman who will, who will crush the head of the serpent. From the seed of the woman shall come one who will in fact bruise the serpent's head even while the serpent bruises his heel. We can just imagine one who bravely uses his bare foot to strike and kill. I used a shovel, but he speaks here of one who will use his bare foot to kill a venomous snake, even while the snake in his defeat bruises the heel of the champion. Again, Christians have called this the proto-evangelion, the first prophecy of the gospel, or as one put it, the first gospel presentation. What's being spoken of here, friends? It's Christ, isn't it? Christ will be, 
as Isaiah will prophesy of him in Isaiah 53, 5, the one who will be bruised for our iniquities. But by his stripes, we will be healed. One commentator declared the remainder of Scripture is promised in this one verse. Genesis 3.15 is basically, in a nutshell, in Nuke, all the rest of the revelation of Scripture. From this point forward, the rest of the Bible is just a development of this redemptive theme. Well, friends, we've worked through the passage. I I should hope that with the Spirit's help, that you've already made appropriate connections, spiritual connections. Let me, though, hasten just to point to a few others maybe if, uh, that haven't yet been obvious to you. Here are some things I think we can draw from this passage. First of all, I think we are meant, we are meant to sympathize with our first parents. That's what we, we call them, Adam and Eve, our first parents. We are descended from them by ordinary generation and we have received from them a sin nature and we add to that our own actual transgressions. But I think we're meant to, we're meant to empathize, to sympathize with them. And we are meant to acknowledge that we too have fallen. Remember the old New England primer in Adam's fall, we send all. Not only did we receive that, that sin nature from them, but if we reflect enough and think about enough, about enough we, we, we've engaged in these same scenarios. God has given us clear commands in his word and we have disobeyed them. We have trespassed against God's commands. And what is more, we've experienced guilt and shame. Where does that come from? Even the the people who most violently, loudly, vociferously will say, I don't believe in a God. I don't believe there is a God. Why is it that they also will try to cover up their transgressions? Because deep in their hearts, they know there is a God. And they know that they feel shame and guilt before him when they do that which is not right in his sight. We have tried to hide ourselves from him just like Adam and Eve did. You can hide yourself in various ways. You can hide yourself by not going to church. You can hide yourself by not listening to the Bible. You can hide yourself by denying that there is a God. You can hide yourself by overworking, being too busy for spiritual things. You can hide yourself by escaping through drugs and alcohol or through entertainment or sports. There's a place for recreations. That can be good. Paul said bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We can hide from God in in many, many ways. But the Lord God today comes through this open book and the stammering preachings of this errant preacher the Lord God today comes, his voice is speaking. His word is seeking. His word is finding us out 
confronting us and he's asking us a series of questions. Where art thou? Hast thou eaten of the tree? What is it that thou hast done? He's conducting a spiritual investigation, an interrogation in our midst today as he does every time the word is open, read, and preached. And the question is, will we cast and shift blame? Or will we acknowledge our faults and confess them? And will we come to know the one about whom God himself prophesied? The skull-crushing seed of the woman. In Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, he will describe the Lord Jesus Christ in this way in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. And in Galatians 3.13, Paul will say of the Lord Jesus Christ that he was made a curse for us. We can't escape the curse. We'll talk about the curse placed on us next time. But we can't escape that curse save for the Lord Jesus Christ who became a curse for us on the cross. He's our only hope. Hallelujah. He's our only hope. All I have is Christ. We sang about it already today. Amen. Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word and for this unfolding story, this this narrative that is true and is truth. And we ask, oh God, that you help us to understand more of ourselves, understand more of thee as we do read and meditate upon thy word. And so use thy word today to whatever ends you would use it. We know it will not return to thee void. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.